Hello there. Welcome to the Journey On Podcast. I'm Dave Smelser. So last time we began to look at some big topics which have been central to most of my church-going friends, but which might have become less helpful as the years went by for them. And so which might be right for some fresh considering from the journeying sort of contemplative perspective we talk about here. So last time we kicked this off with a look at maybe the biggest such topic of all, Jesus, and how a connection with Jesus might be able to weather the sorts of storms that so many of my friends have experienced in and out of churches. As we chatted about that in our online groups, I got the feedback that yes, this sort of reconsidering was really helpful, but that while we were on the subject, it would be even more helpful if we could follow up that conversation by looking at a next topic, which was just as central as Jesus to these folks in their earlier faith lives, but which often felt spoiled for them now, the Bible. So being the responsive person that I am, today we'll consider things like, to start with, how the Bible has been colossally shaping and helpful to me, but then why it so often gets ruined, maybe irredeemably ruined, for so many longtime churchgoers. We'll look at how a central evangelical teaching about the Bible turns out to be particularly damaging for some of my friends, and also to be unreflective about how Christians throughout history haven't taken the advice that this evangelical teaching offers. We'll talk about how one stage of faith colors how one teaches the Bible in ways that unacknowledged often backfire. We'll look at some historic correctives to that problem, including a famous one from John Wesley. And we'll consider how most of us have overlooked how Jesus himself read and discussed the Bible that was available to him and how noticing that can help us out. We will think about famously challenging questions about the Bible, like why it can take a thousand or two thousand years for some of its teachings to seem obvious, like that slavery is bad, for instance. Why didn't that come up earlier? And we'll close with what to me was a powerful and unexpected bit of advice from the Psalms that has made a big difference for me. So that's where we're headed. Before we launch in, if you like Journey On, let me mention that you might enjoy one of our online groups where each week we get key coaching along the lines of the spirituality we talk about here. And we get to meet new friends who love this stuff and who live in several countries. These groups are pretty dynamic in my experience. So you could try one on Wednesday nights at 6 p.m. Pacific time, on Sundays at 3.30 p.m. Pacific time, or on Mondays during the day at 11 a.m. Pacific time, which we found works best for some of our international friends. You can check out one even this week by emailing mail, M-A-I-L, at blueoceanfaith.org for more information about how to get connected. Mail at blueoceanfaith.org. All right, that said, kick us off, Ryan Hood, for how the Bible can remain an unexpected pleasure. So I want to begin by saying I am so grateful and so delighted to have spent so much time reading and thinking about the Bible. So I might be inflating this a bit, but I did some math in preparation for this about how much Bible reading I have done. So I tried to add up how many chapters I've likely read on the average day, how many days, how many years, etc. How, how many times would that mean I've gotten through the whole Bible, presuming I'd read it all cover to cover? I think the answer was somewhere about 65. That might even be a bit on the low end. And obviously I've read some books like Obadiah maybe three times, but the New Testament, you know, well more than 65 times. So it's a, it's a, a sliding scale depending upon what part of the Bible you're talking about. But at least even if I'm off a bit, that's taking a good faith pass at how much I've read. So in our Sikh class, a class we used to teach in Cambridge, Massachusetts for people exploring faith, we would talk to these newbies, again, from an evangelical perspective, about what to hope for by virtue of reading the Bible. First, we told them they could hope for 1,600 years of stories relating to God. Secondly, they could hope for an emphasis on relationship rather than rules, which I think is an important thing to realize as you read the Bible. And thirdly, we said that they could expect a surprising ability to speak to your situation at key moments. 
And we mentioned something there that I'm going to work a bit towards the end of our time here today that I thought was really interesting, which is that if it's the, the word of God we're told in the Bible that it can accomplish this sort of speaking to our lives at key moments, actually three things in the Bible get called the word of God. The first is the Bible. So fair enough. But it's not just the Bible. Jesus gets called the word of God as if Jesus can speak and be worth speaking into our lives in a similar way. And then God speaking directly to us gets called the word of God. The word of the Lord came to Samuel or something like that. When God just speaks, those three things are sort of a package deal. And we're going to talk to how those things work in concert. All that said, I feel very conversant with the Bible. And it often comes up in conversations that Grace and I have about many things. So the specificity of our focus here is meant we sometimes don't talk about key Bible teachings. But let me mention a few that just came to mind quickly that have really shaped conversations I have with Grace, how we live our lives, how we think about what the world is. So thinking at random. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. All else comes from evil, Jesus says. So be a person of your word. If you aren't, it comes from evil. Um, forgive seven times, 70 times. This overflowing wellspring of forgiveness is the thing we should be looking for in our life, as if we're going to be hurt again and again and again. But the way our lives can go forward is this well of forgiveness coming out of us. That's really shaped my view of the world. Um, God makes us more than conquerors, says Paul in Romans, because he loves us. Seeming to say, hey, bad things are going to happen to you. But if you know God, not only can you conquer those bad things, you can more than conquer them, where they become part of the story of the good stuff happening in your life as well. Very important for me. Uh, Old Testament stuff. Show hospitality to the stranger, because by doing so, some have entertained angels unawares. So it gives me kind of a social ethic and of realizing that I'm going to be tempted to only care about people who feel like me, who are kind of in my circle, or people like, you know, I can relate to, but that God is often showing up with people I don't relate to, with strangers, with people different than me. It's a whole way of looking at the world that the Bible has shaped for me. You do not have, because you do not ask, we're told in the New Testament. If we just went to God with more of what we need, we would have more stuff. Very important teaching to me. Anyway, all that sort of stuff has been really shaping. My imagination has been shaped for sure by all that Bible reading, and my view of my place in the world has been shaped as well. So I've done a little bit of fiction writing over the years. I think a lot of it has come from just being a person who's read the Bible. It's kind of shaped how I think about what a story is. Okay, all this stuff, very shaping to me. That said, let me offer some that saids. And this is going to be me speaking candidly. I hope this proves helpful. So many of my friends who have left churches, particularly evangelical churches, describe themselves as burned out on the Bible. They no longer read it devotionally or pretty much for any other reason. So why is that? I think it's because a central evangelical teaching turns out, at least for them, to be untrue and unhelpful, which is that reading the Bible in itself will give us spiritual growth. And the more we read, say an hour a day or something, the more we'll grow. I know so many people who've given themselves to that plan for years and years only to burn out on it without the promised benefits. I've done that myself, clearly. But it does seem worth noting that the vast majority of faithful people in history have read very little to none of the Bible because it wasn't, for instance, in print for the vast majority of the history of people trying to follow Jesus. They didn't have a Bible. They couldn't read the Bible. Or they were illiterate, which is the vast majority of people over the years who've tried to follow Jesus, including some in the modern day, less, but some. So Bible reading as a devotional act has only existed since the late 1800s, and it's only been widely available since the early 1900s. So think about that. 
if Christian history begins with Jesus, let's just say for convenience's sake, at the year zero, and we're in 2020 as I record this, for 100 years-ish of the 2,000, 2,100 years since, um, we, uh, my math is bad here, for 100 some years of the 2,000 years since-ish, we have had access to this bit of counsel for spiritual growth. Read the Bible every day for a 20th. The rest of the time, it was not available to people. Um, when Martin Luther and the Reformers talked about sola scriptura, they weren't thinking that the average person was going to have any interaction with this idea, not being literate or having access to a Bible. They were talking about people like themselves as Bible readers. The average Christian, instead, has always gone straight to God. Now, it's not that they have not been taught by priests or pastors over the years, and the Bible has not come up. Clearly, it has. Although often, the pastors and priests had not, in many cultures, read the Bible themselves or much, or were not literate themselves. So... All to say is this bit of very specific counsel, get this physical artifact called a Bible, read through it a lot every day, and you're going to grow, is a modern innovation. Additionally, how the Bible has been dogmatically interpreted causes many people problems. So I talked about these stages of faith over several of our podcasts. So stage two, the conservative stage, definitionally needs true interpretations. But then it consistently finds itself in the rut of defending the indefensible, slaveholding, women being silent in churches, gay people not being valued like other people, the evils of marriage between races, the evils of birth control, things like that are holes that the conservative stage falls into again and again. That said, stage three, the progressive stage, then swoops in to point out the key teachings of the Bible that stage two ignores, the care for the stranger and things like that. But it also falls into ruts because it has a dogmatic look, often, at what the right way to think about the Bible is. So which is right? The reality is, it seems to me, that interpretation entirely comes from the mindset you begin with. Conservative believers see conservative believer realities. Progressive believers see progressive believer realities. Having gotten a seminary degree from an evangelical seminary and being a bookish sort of person, having read libraries of biblical interpretation ever since, theology as a discipline seems, on the one hand, fun. I learned so much from so many great writers. But where it goes bad is when a writer or a given tradition regards itself as the capital T truth. The whole premise of the fourth stage that we talk about here, the journeying, kind of often contemplative stage, is that God is shockingly bigger than we are. It's a losing game to master God or to have any confidence that we know objective truth. It does suggest we should be a little slower to say, well, the Bible says. And perhaps we should be a little quicker to make it personal. So we might say something like, a passage that's really meaningful and helpful to me is Matthew 5, particularly the point that talks about being the salt of the earth. Here's why that speaks to me. So a little more humility can often keep people in the game of learning what we can from teachers of the Bible without having to wholesale take an interpretation as just the obvious truth. Now, I'm not saying there's no ways to think about the Bible that is more helpful than other ways, and I'll give you some suggestions about how to do that in a minute. But I am saying that knowing Jesus in the centered set way we talked about last time is very helpful and very doable, at which point, if we just chill out a little bit about being right about things in the Bible— the Bible's good qualities actually come back into play for us, as we're going to talk about in a minute. So in that spirit, let's think for a moment about some premises about Bible reading. One that seems worth pondering is a famous one in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. 
Now, that seems nothing but true to me, but what does it mean? I think one fallacy that might have made that less useful is that my interpretation of a given passage is the God-breathed one, or that my interpretation is so obvious that it's not really an interpretation at all, that it's just the clear meaning of the text that any fair-minded person would concede. I kind of like the Jewish tradition of how the Hebrew scriptures became valuable and alive, this thing called midrash, that it's in conversation granted among educated, fair-minded people that these scriptures are going to come to life as we talk about it together. That seems like a helpful starting point. And perhaps you've read delightfully iconoclastic takes on the scripture, like recently this book by this man named Peter Enns called The Bible Tells Me So, that bring up entirely new perspectives on how to look at horribly hard scriptures to find anything valuable in, like God commanding the Israelites to commit genocide in the book of Joshua. Enns points out that the so-called clear meaning of the scriptures doesn't do us much good in cases like that. So how can we think about the Bible without falling into this trap? Just a quick thought that came to mind back from my seminary days. Here's where famous traditions of how the Bible helps us find truth can help us out. It's like John Wesley, the founder of Methodism. He had this thing he called his quadrilateral, as if they were four legs of a table of how to find God's truth. And here's Wesley's quadrilateral. His first, which I think is fun, was personal experience, the first leg. We read the Bible and we figure out the truth of God from what happens to us. There is a subjectivity built in, and it has to be there. Or not just us, it could be from our community, from how our community has experienced God, but it's a personal thing, personal experience. The second like scripture, which for Wesley got read at several levels beyond the very helpful on its own terms method that dominates today called the historical critical method. That's a useful thing, sort of a post-enlightenment way of looking at the Bible, but there's been plenty more over the years, an allegorical way of looking at the Bible, for instance. Um, but nonetheless, scripture, we do the best we can understand it, and we uh, have blend that with how it seems to us from personal experience. Thirdly, tradition. Now, obviously, that could be your particular tradition. So I was mentioning I led in an evangelical church network, so maybe that's evangelicalism, but that's a pretty short tradition. So maybe it's Catholicism, maybe it's all of Christendom, how all Christians of different types have considered um, truth. But some people have, probably the last 50, 60 years, talked about this thing which we have been alluding to here called the perennial tradition, which is the idea that if God reveals God's self, that God does it to everybody on earth, that God doesn't play favorites. And so God has been revealing important things throughout the world. So the perennial tradition is not just saying, well, how would my evangelical tradition or my Catholic tradition or my mainline Protestant tradition interpret this idea in this text. It would be, how do those things, how are those things true? And additionally, are there other places on earth that are talking about similar things and what do they have to say? And so that opens up conversations we've had about uh, views from the East or views from you know parts that are not traditionally represented in conversations about theology. Do they have anything to contribute? The perennial tradition. So Wesley's four legs, personal experience, scripture, tradition, and for him being a kind of coming into his, uh, his realization of the world post-enlightenment reason, how do you figure things out from there is his fourth leg. Now, here's a fascinating take on another challenging Bible question. My favorite Bible professor in seminary brought up a provocative take on why later generations seem to have clearer vision on some scriptures than earlier generations do, as I mentioned on slavery, for instance. So traditionally what happens when somebody suggests a novel interpretation of the Bible, so most recently it would have been, boy, when I first started following God in the 80s, can women lead in churches? It seems like for most traditions now, a non-issue. Even me mentioning it, you might think, really? 
People have asked that. Let me tell you, I believe the first major church tradition to ordain a woman happened in the 1980s. It was one of the Anglican communions ordained a woman. And in my evangelical seminary at the time, it was an outrage. Those people didn't care about the Bible. And now it seems like, oh, come on. And you think, well, hold on then. If they were the first, it was the 1980s. Are they the first smart people who ever existed in Christendom? What about the, you know, basically 2,000 years of history where no one was ordaining women? Were they all just buffoons? They didn't know how to read the Bible. They were just dummies. How, why are you so smart, you person coming up with this new thing? And since then, it's not just that. Uh, there's been a contentious conversation about the place for LGBTQ plus brothers and sisters in churches. I've been in the fray on that one myself. And as someone who argues that it's obvious to me that they are people, and as people, we all are in this together. So there is no, we can, we can all follow Jesus together. It seems obvious to me. But it sure doesn't to many of my other friends. And the, uh, those friends might say to me, well, who died and made you so smart when 2,000 years of church tradition don't back you up? Here's a way to think about that that I learned in my seminary days from a favored professor of mine who in addressing that problem, it's not just women or gay people, it's slavery and, and, and many other things. He said, well, Dave, I wonder if we could look with new eyes at the scripture in Galatians 3.28, where Paul says, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And he said, what if that's like a pecking order that God is saying through that verse, or Paul is saying, speaking for God through that verse, that there's no longer Jew or Gentile. That was the issue being addressed in the biblical era that Paul, with which Paul was, in which Paul was writing. There's no longer Jew or Gentile. What that's saying is, it's not that there's one very small group of people whom God loves and God's doing all the good stuff on earth for that one small group of people. What was being blown up then is that God is alive for everybody. No longer Jew or Gentile. God's there for the whole world. That's what was being dealt with in the biblical era. Slave or free, my professor suggested, I wonder if God was communicating to us through that verse, that was going to be next, but it was going to be a while. There would be a gap before that suddenly became obvious and could be addressed. And then finally, in that scripture, male and female, which was just being addressed as I was talking to this professor. And his point was, I wonder if history in God's eyes unrolls in real time, in like history, in, in actual time. And so things are not all known at once. And somewhat of that could just be because culture has to kind of catch up. It often seems like in terms of Christian social views, the broader culture gets there first. The broader culture began realizing slavery was an issue and Christians certainly could engage on that or that women being able to lead every bit as well as men could. The broader culture was sort of down with that and understood that before Bible people did. But then that was helpful in realizing, oh, there's a whole way of looking at these verses which we hadn't even realized and uh, LGBTQ, et cetera, those would be similar examples. So there's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. I wonder if there's a progressive rollout of some of those things. Uh, now, maybe you've noticed that Jesus himself messes with simplistic takes on the Bible when he teaches in parables. And he tells us in Mark chapter 4 that the very words of the parable aren't the issue, which is an interesting way to think about a text. So if the meaning is obvious, it's not obvious in Jesus' parables, as he tells us. So when he's training us on how to understand parables in Mark chapter 4, the very beginning of the chapter, he tells a story to a bunch of farmers who've come to hear him speak about a farmer taking a handful of seed and throwing it on some uh, types of soils 
which will either be receptive or unreceptive to growing the seed. If it's a path, they're going to be eaten by birds. If it's a weedy stretch of soil, the weeds are going to choke it out. If it's a rocky stretch of soil, it might start to grow, but the sun's going to burn down and burn it up. But if it's really rich, loamy sort of soil, it'll really grow. And then he basically says, thanks so much. See you later. And most people leave. What was he talking about? Well, on the face of it, he was talking about very obvious farming advice. A bunch of people come to follow him and they say, I don't get that. You flagged to us it was important. You began your teaching by saying, hey, listen to this as if it's important. And you close by saying, you really should listen to this. So you're telling us this is really important. But then you're saying things that seem innocuous or pointless. Help us out. And Jesus effectively says to them, oh, you know what? You're track of what I'm doing because you paid attention to me saying it's important. So you came to ask me about it. And by virtue of asking me about it, I will interpret it for you. So here's what's really going on. The soils represent different sorts of people, and, and the, the seed is God's word. It's been scattered in certain ways. And it actually could apply to all you people in the room about where you're going to be headed kind of spiritually, and that's what it's about. Jesus is telling us there that the literal words of the Bible often only work in a sort of interactive relationship with a God who will speak back. That if we just rely on the literal words of the Bible themselves, in many instances, they are impenetrable. They cannot help us. They're meant to be in a sort of dialogue, a sort of relationship. While we're on the subject of Jesus, it might be worth briefly considering, how did he read the Bible? Because he had some Bible in front of him, and he was often regarded as being sort of a playing fast and loose with that Bible or doubling down and deepening some things. But I've read some folks who say, you might want to pay attention to like, what did Jesus ignore? You know, so he didn't talk like out of the Torah, basically, or at least out of the, the legal code, almost nothing. There's something like 625 laws reflected there, like the rules to live by, of which, which Jesus mentions, I believe, two. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two. Are those the only important ones? The rest he didn't seem to give much attention to. Maybe we shouldn't be given quite so much attention to that sort of legal code. That's interesting. Or what about those difficult passages, like where God seems to command genocide, and that actually has become very important passages in areas where uh, we churchgoers have done some bad things, like the Crusades, very popular there, that sometimes God calls you to wipe people out, um, and another equally destructive point in history. Well, Jesus did not quote from those parts of the Bible. He seemed to ignore them. Is that worth noting? Um, all to say, looking at the priorities Jesus gives to Scripture seems like another way that might be worth keeping in mind as we try to have the Scriptures continue to grow with us and not become difficult or oppressive. So I want to close with a look at Psalm 1, the first psalm in this light. And I want to go back to this thing we talked about earlier and work it just a little bit. So Psalm 1 begins, and I've cut just a little bit of it, but effectively by saying, Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who meditates on God's law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever that person does prospers. So seeming to say, if you meditate on God's law day and night, is that the Bible? You're going to be like a tree planted near a river. It's going to have so much water in its root system. It's going to yield a bunch of fruit. It's going to be great. And then it goes on to say, for people who don't do this, they are what gets called in the psalm, the wicked, and they don't get anything. It's all going to go bad for the wicked. And so you think, okay, so I want to be that. I want to be that tree, as I certainly do. How do I do it? Well, at first glance, it seems like, well, the evangelicals, I guess we're right. I guess I'm supposed to be having a paperback copy of the Bible and flipping through it as much as I possibly can during the day. And if I just do it, 
uninterpreted. It's just gonna, I'm, my life's gonna go great. And the more I can do it, the greater my life's gonna go. But then you realize that can't be right. The listeners to the psalmist, when that was written, didn't have a paperback Bible that they were just gonna read day and night. They were illiterate. They did not have access. There was no printing press. They could not do that. So how could they do what the psalmist is saying? Well, on the one hand, the words of the, the law, the law from God that they had available to them were read aloud, I believe, one time a year. So they could go and hear the whole thing read aloud, and some of these uh, rabbis who would read it aloud uh, memorized it, so quite impressive. So there was a little access to the actual words available to them once a year, but they could not meditate on it day and night unless they too could memorize the whole thing from hearing it, not from reading it, once a year, which seems unlikely. So how, what's this about? Well, it's interesting. Sort of as we talked about what the Word of God means in the Bible, it seems to mean the Bible itself, Jesus, and the Word of God that God just speaks when you listen to God. The law of the Lord also gets kind of greater context as you look at the whole Bible. The law of the Lord does seem to be the words of the Bible, for sure. But it also seems to be Jesus, who we're told is the lawgiver. He's the new law when he comes to the New Testament. And it seems to be God's direct communication by the Holy Spirit that Jesus gives us. Jesus says, I'm going to leave, and I'm going to leave you with the Holy Spirit, and he is going to pass on everything God is saying to me, the word of God, the law. So how do we do what Psalm 1 is saying? And what that suggests to me is that Psalm 1's right. The more we can center our hearts on the Bible for sure, or Jesus, or what it means to be present to the Holy Spirit in our lives coming from God, we're going to prosper. Now, some of the things we talk about here might have that effect. So we talk about a mindfulness kind of with Jesus, where we're attentive. We get behind the waterfall of our thoughts and emotions. We get still, and we notice what comes through them. And in that noticing, it's this thing called mindfulness. Well, so many Christian contemplative teachers and some who are not Christian contemplatives talk about how mindfulness is attending to this moment, which opens the doors for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is with us as we are living now, that God is only alive right now, that God is not alive in a hypothetical future or in a good or bad past. That's already over. God is alive in this moment. God is the God of the now. So mindfulness, contemplation are always to meditate on the law of the Lord and grow like a, a stream. Now, if you're part of doing that is a Bible reading tradition, all the better if it's bringing you life. I think what went bad for so many of my friends in the evangelical tradition is they were told whether or not it's bringing you life, this is the way to grow in godliness. One way, read the Bible a lot and let it speak to you and analyze it and learn from it, etc. And that just over after you know years became almost a torment to my friends. So I think if you can read the Bible in this spirit where you're just basking in it, seeing how it speaks to you, seeing what it says, I do think it'll have that effect along with being with Jesus in ways we talked about last week and in the sort of contemplative mindfulness by which the Holy Spirit can just be bathing you as much as possible throughout your day. I think that's a very promising way forward. And it's funny, having now talked with several online groups about this material, one bit of feedback I've heard is from people who burned out on the Bible who are suddenly reading it again. And so what they're saying is, oh, well, if I can just do it and in this spirit, I actually am interested. I'd love to see how it could offer stuff to me now on these terms. So perhaps that'll be true for you. I've had a bit of an uptick in my own Bible reading in the last few weeks as we talked about this stuff. So three cheers for that, along with the other ways of being present 
to God as most of human history has pursued the other two. All right, there we go. My thoughts on how the Bible can stay pleasant for us and a pleasure for us, even as our life circumstances grow. Hope it's been helpful. Look forward to talking to you sometime soon.